Lab talk with Laura. Listen, I implore ya. Won't never bore ya. Lab talk with Laura. Always more in store ya. Lab talk with Laura. Welcome to the 12th episode of Lab Talk with Laura. My guests today are Benjamin Kiesling and Raquel Bryant, uh, both from the Geoscience Department. Uh, Benjamin and Raquel are both National Science Foundation Graduate Research Fellows and co-founders of the Bridge Program that we'll be talking about today here at UMass. Um, Raquel is also um, the Safe at Work Campaign Coordinator for Graduate Women in STEM as well as a board member of the Graduate Student of Color Association. Raquel is originally from West Hartford, Connecticut. She got her BA in Geology and Biology from Brown University. Um, She studies marine microfossils to understand how the Earth's oceans have changed through geologic time. Benjamin is originally from Portland, Oregon. He got his BA in Physics from St. Olaf College in 2013 and his Master's in Science from UMass Amherst in 2015. He uses computer models to study what caused the amount of ice on Earth to change through geologic time in order to improve predictions of future sea level rise. Thank you so much for joining me, Benjamin and Raquel. Hey, Laura. Also joining as my co-host today is comedian Tom McCauley, who is also a poet and teaching associate in the English department here at UMass and a member of Folks with Jokes. Hi. Hi. Thanks for joining us, Tom. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Okay, so first off, um, so Benjamin and Raquel, you're both uh, co-founders of the Bridge Program, so maybe you could tell me a little bit about what that is. Yeah, take it away. Cool. Um, The Bridge Program is a new program that we've received funding for from the Chancellor's Office uh, that aims to bring early career researchers to campus to give talks about their research, but also to talk about their broader impacts. So a change in the National Science Foundation's sort of grant uh, guidelines in the last decades is they've begun focusing equally on intellectual the intellectual merit of a project, kind of the scientific component and the broader impacts. So how that project is going to make a difference within broader communities that that scientist is attached to and for society as a whole. But broader impacts are not something that we often uh, talk about or hear about from scientists that visit campus. And so one of the things Raquel and I wanted to do is bring scientists that are early in their careers so that graduate students might feel a little bit more um, closer to them in time Mm -hmm. and have them talk not just about their research but also about what they do within their communities to bring that research to a broader audience. It's been really cool too. So we got our support through the chancellor's office um, kind of on the heels of the campus climate survey that went out to everyone at UMass. The administration has been really great about giving students opportunities to steer their conversations. And as research fellows to the National Science Foundation, like we don't have obligations except to like do our work. And to us, that means like practice our broader impact. So part of organizing this program is also us kind of practicing what it means to actually implement those ideals of balancing you know, your research with your service to your community. And we're just really excited to have like our idea being supported and really excited to have our first scholar later this month. Yeah, we have on April 24th, uh, Dr. Rosimar Rios-Berrios is coming from the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder, Colorado, and she's going to be talking about hurricane intensification. Okay. Hot topic right now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, Where is that? Uh, it will be in ILC S211 at 4 o'clock. 
on April 24th. What day of the week is that? It's a Tuesday. Tuesday. A Tuesday. So will these lectures all be on Tuesdays or is it? Hopefully in the future. This We're really just getting this program off of its feet. Yeah. Um, our goal is to have this program integrated into the sort of departmental lecture series that exist on campus with the idea that when folks are setting up their lecture series for a semester, they can apply to Bridge to have one of their speakers be what we call a Bridge Scholar. And that will um, that means that in addition to giving a talk within a department lecture series, they will also give a talk about broader impacts. And then they'll also do this Bridge to Students luncheon where graduate students have a chance to sort of one-on-one -on -one have an informal conversation with the researcher. And we would like that researcher to be early career. That's sort of our list of qualifications to be a bridge scholar and if departments want to nominate one of their speakers to do that we can provide supplemental funding if that speaker is coming from further away or if they would like them to stay longer on campus something like that so in the future hopefully we can do this in a fully integrated way with the department lecture series and I think that's important because one of the reasons we started bridge was out of our experience coordinating our own department lecture series and thinking how would we like this to look different in the future and so to have that integrated in what is already happening is really our end goal and hopefully what will be happening next fall. Nice. So which departments would you be including in that? Um, we're looking at including everyone in SES, so UMass's new School of Earth and Sustainability. For me, when I think about why I'm an earth scientist, I think the earth is that last common denominator of all living things on the planet, right? So we should all have access and be able to study our home. It's like our shared place. and so. All of us on the initial planning committee are environmental earth scientists in some way, and we think that's a way to really get people together. So we're focusing on schools or and departments within SES. And I do, I really like that framing, but I was surprised, and I do want to say I went to a talk just last week that was out of the anthropology department. They had a visitor who studied uh, monkeys in the forests. A primatologist. And a primatologist, thanks. <laughs> Um, no, but in South America and in Africa, he had spent six cumulative years of his life in the field. And anyway, he came to give their department talk, and then he gave a supplemental talk on what it was like to be a queer primatologist. Mm. And so they booked a separate space for that and had this sort of additional talk on what I would consider as part of a, a broader impact, a way that his own experience has been impacted by a part of his identity and how that interfaces with the science that he does. And that was out of the anthropology department. And field work sort of the way that our identities or our experiences in the past might make a difference for us in the field and also what our experiences are like in the field depending on who we are as scientists I think is another conversation that really cuts across departments because so many of us are engaged in some sort of field work so we, we're, we are focusing on disciplines related to earth and the environment but what that means in terms of departments might evolve as bridge gets off the ground. Wow and so that was just happening independently but that yeah, really kind of it kind of stolen <laughs> it just it does match up with what you're trying to accomplish with bridge. So you got to see that working, and were you able to go to the broader impacts lecture for that too? Yeah, yes, I did, and it was it was cool. It was unfortunate that um, we hadn't been able to interface with both the professor whose idea that was that invited this mm -hmm. speaker, and the speaker is just very sort of active in their professional organizations, uh, like gay syndicate. Um, and so he said, why don't you give a talk about that, too, while you're here? But yeah. if we had known that was happening, I think we could have put a little, some more resources behind advertising it and making it known to folks that it was happening. It's just not really a um, sort of 
we're not used to hearing scientists talk about things that aren't science, and so I don't think we're used to promoting or we don't have the right framework for publicizing when those things are happening on campus. And hopefully mm. what Bridge is going to do is raise awareness in departments that if you're going to bring somebody to campus anyway, uh, it's a great idea to have them talk not only about who they are as a scientist, but also who they are as a person. I just want to make sure we're talking about somebody. It's Dr. Christopher Schmidt from Boston University. Thank you. Okay. Nice. Should we open up the phone lines? <laughs> Caller one. We don't do that. Really hung up. I, uh, I, yeah, I thought I could announce the phone number and just have people call into the studio while I'm playing the CD of the pre-recording, and I can go. just chat with them. But um. <laughs> so you brought up um, that this came out of running your department lecture series, which mm. is also my department. Laura Full wants disclosure. The tea. <laughs> Full disclosure. It's also my department, geoscience. So you two run the department lecture series. So like every Friday, we bring in somebody to talk about their research. And you guys gave a talk at a conference in the fall about your experience. Your, you analyzed the breakdown of how that whole process went. So do you want to talk about that? Yeah. Do you want to talk about the results? Or do you want me to talk about the results? Go for it. Um, so uh, we don't need to like numbers, but basically me and Benjamin became coordinators for our department lecture series. And we were like, hey, don't you like secretly want to like make this cool and fun and like something everyone wants to come to? What's a way to do that? Okay, maybe we don't need to like be bringing just old white guys to campus. Maybe we can bring, we have a, a graduate population in geosciences that's majority women. So maybe we could at least have half, like 50-50 gender parity in our lecture series. And we did some numbers and that wasn't the case for our series. And mm. so we kind of went through the process of all the barriers that you encounter when you are being intentional about who you're inviting. Like we tried to, have at least gender parity and it was still hard like it was still pulling teeth it was like barriers that we didn't even expect and so going through that process we realized that to really support that idea of trying to bring more diverse scientists to campus we needed money and we needed support and mm. it needed to be something coming from the outside so that's when we started brainstorming with each other and like I said some administrators have been really supportive about just having these conversations in general um, and it's been a way to bring it up to our department without being like your lecture series is bad right it's like well here's a supplement here's a different idea here's a different model like and getting people excited about it that way right and so part of the bridge is that it's bringing early career scientists and is that partly because not just that they're closer in age to graduate students but also because there's greater diversity among early career scientists like this is kind of a problem this is a shift Right. That's currently happening in the scientific community. So if you actually want to diversify things, you have to get newer scientists. And we talk a lot um, in the organization I'm in, in GWIS, Graduate Women in STEM, we talk a lot about just this unnecessary gatekeeping that happens. And we really felt like the way that our lecture series was set up, it was excluding early career scientists because we were really asking faculty to invite their colleagues or sometimes close friends to come give mm -hmm. lectures. So we, weren't, we were kind of already like limited to who the, our faculty members are. Um, recommending and so we wanted to open it up but also acknowledge that getting invited to give a lecture somewhere going to visit another department that's a professional development experience right and that's something that early career scientists like you want to do that you want to go give a talk to a group of people you don't know and get maybe get some feedback talk with different collaborators meet some graduate students these are all experiences that make everybody better scientists and so we really wanted to open that up to you know the diverse all the the new types of scientists that are emerging nice yeah, but I think we have sort of tapped into a larger national conversation about these things. There was yeah. just an article. Yeah, like you mentioned, we gave a presentation at AGU, and that was a great place for us to get kind of feedback and network with other folks who were thinking about, yeah, just the 
diversity of their departments on campus and how to talk about that and navigate that. Um, there was a paper that came out in PNAS in December of last year where they did a survey of uh, many 60 or 80 big national universities in terms of who was invited to speak at the seminar series. And they found a systematic bias that women were less likely to be invited to speak at seminar series uh, and so therefore less likely to give seminars. There's this sort of gap in the pool of people you have in terms of graduate students and postdocs and who is actually getting invited to sort of do these things that build their career prospects by giving them opportunities to build new collaborations mm -hmm. and sort of showcase themselves. But also it sort of starves our departments, many of which are majority female now, of potential role models. Not every woman that walks in the door is going to be a role model for a woman. Not every man that walks in the door is going to be a role model for me. But I don't know. I still, it's hard because conversations about identity are not um, something that we have often within our departments. And some people find conversations about identity to be sort of antithetical to the meritocracy that we think our system is based on. Mm. It Those were matter. air quotes around meritocracy. <laughs> yeah, right, that we think it's based on, right? Yeah. It doesn't matter who you are. It matters what you, the science you do, and that should be completely independent. Mm -hmm. But I still, and, and so first of all, I have a lot of privilege in navigating academic spaces. I'm a white cis man, and that has gotten me very far and opened many doors for me without having eyes batted at me. But I am a gay man, and I still remember really clearly when we had a speaker come to campus in my first year who talked about their same-sex partner kind of openly in an informal way. And that, to me, was a experience that made me kind of feel like, ah, oh, that's cool. I've never heard an academic talk about being in a gay relationship before. And that makes me feel a little bit more comfortable in this room where I'm sitting. You feel seen and your identity as a scientist is validated, right? Yeah. When exactly. We, when we don't bring women to speak on campus, all the women graduate students don't feel like that's what women scientists do. It don't feel like that's where we're welcome. And it's and there's so much we've been focusing a lot and and G was looking at anthropology papers talking about like how this actually works. Like what's the scale? What how do you get envi an environment that like snowballs into these really toxic environments that are rife with like sexual assault and sexual harassment. And it starts with this idea of incivility. And that is full of things just like put downs, like the casual denigration of women and not seeing yourself as the speaker, but seeing yourself all around the room as the students, you, you, you mm. are already filling in those blanks. And those are the types of cultural things that convince women that they don't belong in academia. Right. Can you yeah. speak a bit about G Wiz? Yeah, so GWIS is the Graduate Women in STEM, um, and we we have that title, but if you are down with what we do, come join us. Um, but we have a bunch of different committees, and I'll talk a little bit about the Advocacy Committee, which um, I'm a part of as a campaign chair. And so last August, we started um, the Safe at Work campaign, which is focused on creating safe and healthy um working environments for graduate students. And for graduate students, that can mean so many things. That can mean the bench in your lab, that can mean auditorium in moral, that can mean going to a conference to present your work. And we've just, as a women's organization on campus, we have been the conduit for all of these stories of graduate women leaving graduate school because of the harmful environments that they're steeped in for their graduate careers. 
Um, and we've just been trying to use all the resources we can, each other, faculty, administrators, legislators, to get this um, issue to the front of the conversation so we can start solving it. And it goes back to this idea of like, we're wasting resources, we're wasting money if we have all of these like ideas on how to convince women and underrepresented groups to join science if we don't do anything to retain them. The people who leave graduate school are disproportionately women, disproportionately people of color, disproportionately women of color. And it's something that we have to be intentional about, and it's still going to be hard, which is what we learned through Bridge, trying to put together Bridge as well. So when people like are apathetic, when they're like, well, my identity doesn't matter, so I won't join the conversation, like you are still part of the problem. Like We all have to be just like conscious of it and, and intentional, yeah. That's all. There's more yeah, things and about GWIS, but you should go to our website, www.gqmag.org, to learn all about the campaign. Thank you. Okay, I'd like to switch gears and talk about your research. For sure. Okay, so Raquel, you're working on your PhD. Yeah. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your research? Um, okay, I study foraminifera, which are unicellular protists. Um, they're really cute because they make uh, shells out of calcium carbonate. And the other thing that's really cool about them is they have lived in every ocean for millennia, like millions and millions and millions of years. So their fossil assemblages and how they change through time can tell us a lot of how the ocean has changed through time. And I'm a paleoceanographer, so I'm interested in how the ocean has changed, especially in response to rapid climate change through Earth's history. It's really important to understand how our oceans work because our oceans affect our climate. And especially today when we're asking a lot of tough questions about what our future, like wh what is in store for our planet as we're pushing it off a cliff, it's important to look back in time and we can actually study other intervals when it's gotten super warm super fast or when the oceans have gone anoxic. We can actually study that and learn how the ocean recovered, what the rate was, and getting a better grasp of that will help us predict what's going to happen in the future. Okay, can you explain what does that mean if the ocean goes anoxic? Anoxia just means like without oxygen. So the oceans can, um, the bottom, like the whole column can get different levels of anoxic. So basically it just means the ocean has no oxygen in it, which isn't good. So and why does that happen? For a myriad of reasons. Okay, it's complicated. Um, related to like global warming, changes in ocean circulation, changes in the amount of organic matter that's delivered to the seafloor. It's, it's one of those things that's like, oh, it's a catch-all, and everybody has their pet ideas about why it really happens, but okay. it's probably just So this just is a, disputed a little bit, or? I wouldn't say disputed, it's just the other thing about deep time, and every time I say I study deep time, like somebody who studies like billions of years, it's like, oh, you think you studied time. But I studied the Cretaceous since like 90 million years ago. So I mean, that was a long time ago. Who are these people you're talking to? Who are like, that's not deep time. I'm wondering. People, like, people who study like early microbes, like okay. three billion year old rocks. Are, like, you don't know what you're so talking wait, you about. So wait, you study the Cretaceous mostly. Yeah. Yeah, How yeah. long ago Oh, was that? only. 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 Okay. My advisor is always mentioned, like, uh, wants me to go on the JR and do other, like, Cenozoic stuff, and I'm just not about it. Okay. So you're focused on the Cretaceous. When was that? Um, the Cretaceous was, it's, well, it's the era that ended with the big um, bolide impact that killed the dinosaurs. So oh. it's, like, 65 million years, probably, like, what, like, 140 to 65 million years ago, okay. something like that. I studied the late Cretaceous right now because there's um, there was a super like warm period called like a super greenhouse. It was super warm. So understanding, I tell people like if figuring out 
when the past times that the climate has been warm and understanding how the climate interacted with the ocean is important for kind of contextualizing the rapid warming that we're experiencing right now. Okay. So what kind of things are you investigating about that time period? I'm trying to understand the changes associated with um, rising sea level at the Sandemanian Turonian boundary, which is about 94 million years ago, because at the same time the earth was warming up. And so you have the earth warming up, global sea levels rising. And we're specifically, I'm looking at the Western Interior Seaway, which is um, sometimes when the earth is warm, the continents get flooded just because there, you know, there's less ice, so there's more water in the oceans. And then when water's warm, it's, it thermally expands, so it gets bigger. And so you can get flooded continents. So you have these shallow seaways occupying continental basins. Um, and so I study one of those called the Western Tier Seaway, which occupied like the western part of the U.S., like Colorado, Utah, New Mexico, that area. And we're trying to understand just the paleoceanographic changes that went on there associated with the warming climate and this um, transgression or sea level rise. So it's really cool because this, this seaway, the Western Tier Seaway, was a meeting place for two really distinct water masses. One was warm and salty and the other one was cold and more fresh. And so they actually, if you look at like a pycnograph, they have similar densities. And so how they interact in that seaway um, might've had a really big effect on the circulation. And we think that might be related to um, some environmental changes in the ocean. For example, oceanic anoxia. Uh, okay. Yeah. So this was a seaway that was co covering a large portion of the Western US. Yeah. So it was all those rocks. So you said it was connecting two bodies of water, so like the Gulf. It, yeah, so the Gulf of Mexico, where the Tethys Ocean was, mm -hmm. which is also an extinct ocean, and okay. then the Arctic Ocean. Okay, that's so that's how dramatically sea level could change. Yeah, like that that whole and and this was ninety million years ago, so the tectonics were a little different. And you can ask Laura about tectonics, people. <laughs> Don't ask me. <laughs> but, but I think what's most important, like all that oceanography stuff is like cool, and that's the stuff that I like, but I th always feel like I should talk more about the fossils, about 4Ms. Um, so I mentioned that they make tests um, or shells out of calcium carbonate, but what's really cool um, is that they use the ambient seawater to do that. So their shells are actually recording information about um, the, the water that they were formed in. So we can understand things like salinity or temperature, how those have changed through time as well by looking at the little shells. And they are, since they are sensitive to environmental perturbations, they're assemblages, so that means like the composition, the species composition, like having this form or that form, maybe one's more abundant than the other. Those, um, looking at their assemblages and um, what species are present, which ones are absent when they go extinct, cannot tell you a lot as well about how the water column has changed. Mm. So people use those assemblages for a lot of different things, right? So you're looking at the content of the shells and that's telling you about the oceans at that time, right. which is kind of amazing. Yeah. That you can just study what was going on in an ocean 90 million years Cash. ago. But also people use those for dating, right? Because they, yeah. know, they know like the history of how the species evolved. So biostratigraphy, we look through the different strata, so like layers in rocks, and you have certain fossils called index fossils where they're, um, the time that they became a species and the time they went extinct is well known. And so we can use those to constrain time. And so yeah, um, there's, I'm sure Benjamin will talk a little bit about his time on a boat but um, can use the forums to tell time in a way. Nice. You were on a boat? I was on a boat. What's I just got like? off the boat. <laughs> um, I mean, different boats are different. Were you on the Beagle? 
I was on the. <laughs> he wishes. Does the beagle still exist? It, maybe. I, it's I probably know. parked We've somewhere all, as a museum. All, I've decided yeah. that it does. <laughs> okay. It probably does. <laughs> I don't think I would want to. I don't think I would have wanted to be on a boat in that era just because <laughs> I have a. Yeah. I have such a vivid memory of really I'm not a big nonfiction reader which is funny because I'm a scientist but like science writing I just don't it's it's never pulled me in but I read this one book called In the Heart of the Sea that was about whaling in mm-hmm. the, like the early days he of whaling loves right. and they <laughs> used to they stopped in the Galapagos and they would just get those giant turtles and keep them in the hull of the boat Whoa. and then whenever they needed because you can't drink seawater but there's no rainwater so they when they needed to drink water? they drank turtle blood Whoa! <gasps> they drank the they turtle drank blood. turtle blood and it was perfect because the blood would stay good <laughs> because the turtles would just like stay alive roaming around <laughs> in the perfect. base of the boat i am perturbed is that not the most grim thing that you've ever that's heard that's really horrifying so it's I, not that grim humans drink cow milk we do things like that all the time <laughs> use animals for their bodies yeah that's a divergence. It uh, <laughs> is a divergence. But, but no, I wouldn't have done one on the Beagle. I can relate because I, I like randomly went on a research cruise and it was only 10 days long. You went for a lot longer. Yeah, it was eight weeks. But I felt really claustrophobic on that boat. Mm. And I was like aware that I could jump off and somebody would rescue me. But mm. like back in the day, <laughs> back in the day, like people would just get on boats and they had no idea what was going to happen. They were so brave. Yeah. I don't know. Were they brave or did they have nothing they else to live for? They had nothing to live for. Life was just really hard. <laughs> All of like the early, I went Let's to. That lapse into temporocentrism. I mean. Okay. Um, but you should talk more about the JR. The boat. Okay. She keeps saying the JR. The JR is the Joydees resolution. Um, so I was on the JR, yeah, for eight weeks, which is a research vessel that uh, mainly does ocean drilling. So it's got a big... Hey, der- hey, hey, ocean discovery. <laughs> okay, ocean discovery, <laughs> which it's a drill involves ship. drilling. Yeah, it's got a big derrick <laughs> on the back. Uh, and we go out and drill into the ocean floor and bring up sediments that mm-hmm. tell us about and how rocks. the ocean has changed through time. Sediments and rocks. Thank you. Um, I get a lot of flack from Raquel because I'm not trained classically as a geologist so sometimes i have a hard time remembering neither am i i'm just a stan with a jr like as a micropaleontologist that's like your dream to go on that thing because you get to be well maybe you'll disagree as a a sailing as a sedimentologist but you're the rock star because you got to tell time that's how my advisor explains it (laughs) you say trained classically as a geologist are there like geology conservatories like juilliard (laughs) but geologyard (laughs) <laughs> oh, that sounds so you dirty um, No I just mean like sometimes I have a hard time Remembering the three main rock types uh, oh. <laughs> Which is just like pretty fundamental It's igneous, <laughs> metamorphic and sedimentary Wow Yeah sometimes I think basalt is one It's not <laughs> um, Anyway In the Pioneer Valley it is <laughs> <laughs> Great Thank you Laura for affirming me Um yeah, so we drill into the ocean floor and bring up these sediments that tell us about how the ocean has changed through time. And Raquel is right, generally, and we experience this on the ship. We're quite interested in the age of the sediments, and the whole drilling operation is well, like quite an expensive and big operation. So sometimes it's really important that we know whether or not we've sort of hit our age target. We only want to drill to 20 million years here, and then we need to go to the next site. And so the biostratigraphers, people who are sieving the sediments and looking for the forams, 
and other nanofossils and dinoflagellates and diatoms that can give us some sense of the age of the sediments, they're kind of in the hot seat and people are waiting, like where, where in time are we because we need to go. So they are rock stars in a lot of ways of what the JR does. Uh, I was on an expedition that is a little bit different from the standard JR expeditions. That's probably wrong to say because every expedition is unique. But we were drilling very close to Antarctica and we were drilling through a lot of glacial till. And so there were sort of, yeah, some unique challenges associated with that. And in general, biostratigraphy was very hard because a lot of the material that you are recovering is not in situ. It's been moved underneath glaciers and redeposited by the glacier moving and advancing. So you can get very old stuff being mixed in with all of the stuff that is in situ just coming out of the water column or living on the seafloor. Mm-hmm. Um, so the virus triggers had a hard time, but the sedimentologists did our best to figure out what was going on with the system. You're listening to Lab Talk with Laura on 91.1 FM, WMUA Amherst. I'm your host, Laura Federuso. My guests today are Raquel Bryant and Benjamin Kiesling from the Geoscience Department. I'm also joined by comedian Tom McCauley, co-hosting. Jumping right back into it. What do you do as a sedimentologist on the JR? Um, So the cores, after they equilibrate, the cores get cut. And then our primary job is to describe the sediments. So what is the texture? Did you have that color book? The Munzel color chart? Yes. Yeah, we had it. That's how I'm going to paint my house if I ever get a house one day. Tens of them with 5YR-2.5G. <laughs> Most of our sediments were dark greenish gray to very dark greenish gray. <laughs> <It's> beautiful. <laughs> Isn't it? All kinds of distinctions time. you yeah. need to make as a scientist. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How long of a journey was that? Um, we left a port in Christchurch, New Zealand, and it took about nine days to get to the Ross Sea wow. in Antarctica. Um, we made very good time. We were like worried about this is like the wonders of climate change. Um, we were very worried about <laughs> having to transit through ice because the JR is not a ice ship. Capable. It's not, uh, yeah, ice capable. Um, so we hired another ship to come meet us in the middle of the ocean, wow. a, an icebreaker, and break a path for us through the ice. So we were all, all of us on the boat, we were really excited to like see the ice and it was going to be this big like adventure there was no sea ice and so we just like followed this random ship through the ocean for a day and then they were like okay we're safe now bye safe than sorry no No, for sure have you seen that movie titanic (laughs) well there were icebergs there were a lot of icebergs and we did have a we had an ice observer on board whose job it was to look out for icebergs just one person um i have seen that movie titanic though that is you know you don't want that to happen if there was an iceberg in your path would it just start like playing the titanic song (laughs) on the loudspeaker night in my dreams (laughs) i mean i would have started playing it (laughs) but it was never it was never that close but they have had to um leave a site and leaving a site is a pretty you have to bring the drill pipe all the way back up to the surface and it can be like a kilometer uh, on the antarctic shelf we were sometimes in a kilometer 800 meters of water so if an iceberg is coming towards you you have to like get all of your stuff and skedaddle because wow. there's nothing else you can do you don't want to get like, hit you How can't long throw a big fan at it like. it, t- it takes like four hours 
So you have to be watching. Yeah, wow. right. We yeah. Maybe you can't blow it away, Laura. The J the JR is a has been in operation for a pretty long time and they are thinking about what is the next platform gonna be. They're gonna retire yeah, the JR. Yeah, because you broke the boat. They're gonna retire the JR and start really? a new one. So I think this actually is a good time to brainstorm what are the capabilities that you would like a future ship to have and like mm. I don't know, flamethrowers or cannons or something that could fend off incoming icebergs might be. Oh, yeah. yeah. Can we What's just the cover the better Wi-Fi first? There isn't. <laughs> I mean, we didn't have Wi-Fi. That's what I mean. Just like this Wi-Fi situation. I think that should be like the first Spire. thing. Was the, was the Joydy's resolution originally um, uh, uh, an oil ship? Is yes. that right? It was retrofitted. It was retrofitted to become a scientific drilling ship. So this is all part of the IODP, International Ocean Discovery Program. Yes. Yeah. And they have a few other boats, right? They yeah. have. They have the CHICU. Yeah, CHICU. And then I can't remember the acronym, but they have like. Uh, MSPs, the, yeah. Mission Specific Platforms. Right. Mm. Um, but it's really cool because they take the technology that the oil companies really like, I don't know, pioneered and like made standard. And then they're like, but for science and so it's fun that bash photographers work with oil um, companies as well, and you do kind of the same thing when you're on the drilling ship, but it's mm. for, um, on the JR. But it's for science. For science, not just for economics. Right. So do you want to talk about how that relates to your research, what you were doing on the Jordan's resolution? Yeah, for sure. So my research interest is in how the amount of, of ice on Earth has changed through geologic time, and sort of the connections between how ice sheets change and what how that affects the climate system. So most of my work for my PhD has actually been on Greenland, which is the big ice sheet in the Northern Hemisphere that if all the ice on Greenland melted, it would raise global sea level by about 22 feet. Wow. Antarctica, if all the ice there melted, it would raise global sea level by something like 200 feet. Okay. So there's a, a bit of a difference. Greenland's about a 10th of the size, mm -hmm. um, but Greenland also sits a lot at a lower latitude and melts more readily than Antarctica does. Mm. So we try to use Greenland to understand how ice melts when climate gets warmer than today and what are the processes that cause the ice to melt, whether uh, retreat is driven mostly by oceanic warming or atmospheric warming or how those two processes interact in different physical settings. Um, so my work on the JR was to try to understand and document the times that the Antarctic ice sheet has been smaller than it is today. And that's sort of ties into a project that I'm working on with some people here at UMass to understand what we call super interglacial periods. Um, right now we live in an interglacial period. Earth oscillates between, uh, for over the last three million years, Earth has oscillated between being in ice ages where there's big ice sheets covering most of North America, down through Iowa, right. uh, <laughs> and interglacials, which are these warm periods similar to the present day. We're in the Holocene now, and it's a warm interglacial, but some of the past interglacials that we've had have been warmer, and there are a select few that we think were exceptionally warm. Um, and the sort of leading hypothesis for what caused those interglacials to be exceptionally warm has to do with ice sheets, that the Antarctic ice sheet shrunk and reduced its contribution to global ocean circulation and that led to some stagnation of the oceans in the northern hemisphere and caused these really warm conditions to occur and we would like to better understand how that works and whether or not that is the case so that we can have a handle on what might happen in the future as the present interglacial looks less like an interglacial and more like the cretaceous <laughs> okay wow more like the cretaceous would be a great band name 
<laughs> I'm going to start that band. Do you want to join? I'm we actually have four a people singer. Here. Well, there we go. Do you play anything? I mean, I sing too, but not as well as Raquel. Laura, do you play anything? I play um, the toy accordion. Oh, Wait, man. Laura, you play like everything. <laughs> I saw really you on. A, I saw you jamming on a cello. <laughs> oh yeah, I play the cello. Too. Maybe I should lead with cello. Toy <laughs> yeah. I can play but f- I'm better on the toy accordion. <laughs> I can play four chords on the, the guitar. I can teach you some. Okay. Isn't four all you need? That's yeah, all. Four the, is, that's the why Beatles I've only ever learned more four. Than four chords, yeah. did they? Oh my god. Uh, actually, no, they don't. E minor, A minor, D, C. Got it. Well, there you go. I can play F too. Fine. Did you guys play any music on the Joy's Resolution? Oh. Gosh, who fed you that question? <laughs> um, <laughs> we listened to music in the lab. That was fun. Um, it was cool. It was 30 different scientists from 13 different countries. And so for me, one of the like, most fun things was giving people the opportunity to control the music for a day and listen to just like what they would listen to at home. So we listened to some K-pop and we listened to some like Japanese rock um, and some Italian music, like classical opera. Um, That was, that was really fun. We had a midway uh, party. Called a hump day party. A hump day party Uh when you're halfway through the expedition. Okay. And some of the, we had had a, um, big debate. We were looking at a lot of diamics, and which is glacial till, and okay. trying to describe glacial till. And so we had this scheme for deciding what kind of glacial till it was. It could either be muddy or sandy, and the line between muddy and sandy is <laughs> like really just the gr- the grittiness of the. Um, is it a muddy line? It's a very muddy line. If I have children, I'm going to name them Muddy and Sandy. (laughs) (laughs) And um, there was another scientist that I was sailing with that I knew from before who I knew really liked the Justin Bieber song, Sorry. And so sometimes when we were switching shifts, I would play that in the lab for them. And one day I came back to the lab and they had started rewriting Don't you like that song a lot too? Oh, I love that song too. That's why I have it on my iPod. (laughs) But I would always play it for them. And they had started rewriting the lyrics of the song, Sorry, to be about um, our experience on the boat. Instead of, is it too late now to say sorry, it was, is it too late now to say Sandy? <laughs> like we're changing the description of the sediments. <laughs> um, and, you know, sometimes you just need a distraction. Things got a little bit out of hand. I ended up rewriting all of the lyrics to that song. And we <laughs> did a dance performance where I sang live for the oh whole the the whole crew and science party of the is JR. Is there a video of this? Yes, there is. Is it on like the IODP website? <laughs> no, it's it not. Needs to be. It's we need not. to collaborate because I have I've been working on my own geologic parody song. <laughs> have you? Called I like big buttes and I cannot lie. Oh my god. <laughs> uh, we so can I do think, an album. I think it's time for an album. Yeah, yeah. I think we've got enough good ideas. I'm, I'm directing all of this energy to Adrian Lamb because this is her passion in life. So talk to my Geologic lab. parody songs? Yes. Okay. She is always bugging me to sing something for her. And I just don't do parody songs. I just don't let my voice I feel to so that, left out. I only do biological parody songs. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Can you do a stem, stem parody? There we yeah. go. Stem parody. In seventh grade, I did a parody song of Smells Like Teen Spirit um, about the cell. Mm. It, was, it was smell like, smells like organelles or something <laughs> <laughs> i thought it was gonna be like smells like formaldehyde 
Um, Benjamin, you also did a trip to Greenland, right? Not too long ago. I did last summer. I was up on the ice sheet at a another kind of coring expedition, but an ice core expedition. Which one is it? Grip. It's called East Grip. Oh, East the Grip. The East Greenland Ice Core Project. Yeah, and so that's really cool. One of the so most ice melting takes place at the margin of the ice sheets, but most of the accumulation of the ice sheet takes place in its center. And what moves the mass of an ice sheet from the center to its margins are ice streams. So just like glaciers, smaller glaciers flow, ice sheets redistribute their mass in these sort of large-scale flow features uh, that, yeah, we call streams. They move relatively slowly. The big ice stream where I was last summer is called the Northeast Greenland Ice Stream. It's moving about 60 meters per year in the place where we were. Uh, but the fastest ice streams on Earth in Western Greenland, they move 16 to 20 kilometers per year. Kilometers. Wow. So so they really clip along. But they're still solid ice? But they're still solid ice. Ice flows. Isn't that so cool? That's kind of yeah. amazing. Um, so anyway, the these streams are sort of the conduits for mass. And they also, changes in these ice streams can determine how much mass is available at the margins for melting and calving and sort of delivery to the sea where regardless of whether it's melted or floating it affects global sea level mm -hmm. and so what we were trying to do at that ice core camp is uh, understand the physical properties of the ice there how that's been altered by the flow and get a sense for whether this flow feature is has been constant through time or whether it's something that changes as the geometry of the ice sheet changes mm. so you're drilling down and looking at like the history via the depth yeah, exactly. Drilling down and, and recovering the ice core. So um, pulling up these sections of ice that also have layers that go back in time. And at the Northeast Greenland ice stream, we can we think we can go back at least 60,000 years, maybe a little bit deeper. The ice at the very bottom near the base, it's about two and a half kilometers thick, a little less than that. The ice at the very bottom is under a lot of pressure and deforms. Uh, quite readily. Also because the ice is moving, there is heat generated and it melts from the bottom. So those oldest parts of the stratigraphy, you slowly melt away. Um, but you, we can still learn a lot just about from the time that's available about how stable that ice stream has been. Is it harder to drill it because it's an area that's moving? Yeah, it's actually an ice core has never been drilled like this on an ice stream before. And so they are still I was there for the first season when they started drilling. That's relatively easy. But as they go back to continue drilling in future years, um, the ice moves def by deforming under its own weight. And so some part of that movement is accomplished in the lower part of the ice where the very lowest ice is not moving very much. But the ice above it is moving more and more and more. And so you have this sort of curved velocity profile mm. and you can imagine that if you drilled straight through that and then came back a year later that hole would no longer be straight it would be bent um, and that is a problem that they'll have to deal with but they haven't gotten so deep that it's a problem yet okay so we'll see mm. so you guys are kind of looking at a similar problem or a similar topics but through different lenses really right like yeah. you're both looking at sea level and your your work relates to ice sheets as well but just via the ocean connection well that this is something that's debated in okay. the cretaceous there's some folks that think that there were ice sheets during the cretaceous at the like ice at the poles oh, okay. and others who think that there weren't it was mm -hmm. too warm um but 
it's probably just one of those. I always think these like battles in science are really funny because to me, maybe it's just because I'm a woman and I don't know any better, but I'm like, it's probably somewhere in the middle. Like, I don't think it needs to be this or that. Like, I don't think it needs to be permafrost or methane hydrates. Like, it could be like we can like work together, like put our ideas together, make like even a better hypothesis. Um, so I probably I, I think it's it's a little both. I'm sure like there could have been ice sheets, and then for most of the year there weren't. Like, what are the different lines of evidence people are using for those debates? Well, like some of it is just like a little outrageous. It's things that people just misinterpret that can be viewed as misinterpretations. But okay. like you know, some evidence for ice rafted debris. But at the same time, the temperatures that we're getting from forams of the bottom of the seafloor in the Cretaceous are sometimes like 12 degrees C. So, like, how do you reconcile that? It's, okay. Yeah, ice rafted. Can you tell what ice rafted debris is? Ice rafted debris are things like big pebbles or even boulders that we call drop stones that the only way they could get to the middle of the ocean is if an iceberg carried them out. Mm. So glaciers, icebergs, I think of them like as bulldozers. They just go and like erode physically, like scrape up the continents that they're scouring and then collect all of that debris. And if you imagine an ice shelf that has all of that worked into it and then an iceberg breaks off and is floating in the sea and continuously melting, it's just gonna start dropping all that stuff. And so sometimes um, you guys drilled through um, ice rafted debris on their expedition. What was it, granite, right? Like yeah, a, a mixture. You so you're just like, how did this uh, get yeah. here? It must yeah. have been ice. <laughs> yeah. It's like when you find exactly. something mysterious, you're like, uh, okay. Yeah. <clears throat> we talked about Benjamin's fieldwork experiences. Do you want to talk about yours at all, Rick? Oh, my God. I had a charmed, like, one fieldwork experience my first summer here. Um, I, I identify as a non-traditional geologist because I don't really like being outside, and I don't even particularly like, like, rocks that much. Um there it's actually getting better being in graduate school and then like meeting people who are interested in rocks I'm like oh okay I can see it now but like it's not it's not like what jazzes me about what I do um but I did have to go out to New Mexico New Mexico to collect rocks um and I went with my advisor and my lab mate in August 2016 and it was really fun because I love the desert that's probably my favorite like biome on earth deserts are so cool um not a lot of bugs that's the best part um, but you, my advisor goes out, out west to do field work. Like, a lot of his projects are based in, you know, Utah, Colorado. And he always talks about, like, going through, p- picking rocks, and, oh, yeah, a scorpion jumped out. And, oh, yeah, a rattlesnake. Oh, yeah, I saw this mountain lion. I do not like animals, wildlife. And so, like, the whole time, I was just on high alert, like, making sure there's nothing around me. We didn't see a single, like, nothing. It was amazing. There were no scorpions at my field site, no rattlesnakes, no nothing. But one day, we were already rushing out because we stayed a little late. I bet you know whose idea that was. And there was a thunderstorm. Like, we could literally see it. Like, the lightning, the clouds, everything. So we're like, well, we need to go. We need to leave. Like, we're literally just in the middle of the field. We're definitely the tallest things around here. We, we got to get out of here. And so we're, like, rushing already, rushing, rushing, rushing. And we happen upon this little, like, pool of water right next to this, like, cliff face. And my advisor just decides that this is the perfect time to mention that this is, like, a perfect place for a mountain lion. They would love to hang out in a place like this. <laughs> water, a place to look out. And I was just so shook. Like, I was holding a Jacob's staff, which is how we measure um, strata. 
and I just started banging things around as I was walking. <laughs> and we're like rushing, rushing, rushing. And then we get out to the car and my advisor's like bleeding. And I'm just like, what's happening? I'm so stressed. I'm like about to start crying. There is mis- misty, what's that? Mesquite. Yes, those plants. They have outrageous thorns, like Sleeping Beauty thorns. And he just like scratched one as he's walking and he didn't even notice and he's just bleeding. Uh, so it was just, I thought it was going to be that you hit him with the yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It just all contributed to my general anxiety about the whole thing. It was awful. So you were out in the desert collecting samples that used to be part of that western interior seaway. Yeah. Those, so like, those rocks used to, even though they're in the desert now, they used to be at the bottom of the ocean. Yeah. Or, it's super cool. Oh, look, a lot of the stratigraphy out west, like, I actually went, was talking to a park ranger who used to work um, at some of the parks out west, and he says that's like the quintessential line if you are a national park ranger out there. You just say, this used to be a vast ocean. That's what you <laughs> tell everybody, because all of these rocks were deposited in um, yeah, the seaway that occupied the Western United States. Pretty mm-hmm. cool. And what's the best part, like, yeah, so I collected all these rocks, and then I brought them back to the lab and spent, like, two semesters soaking them and then washing them over really small sieves. So the sieves that we wash over are, like, 63 microns. Um, so really, really tiny to catch, like, all the little forams. But it's really fun to, like, like, it's a rock, like a hard rock. Like, yeah. But and it's actually you, made up. Is it mostly made up of forams? No, or? it's, it's like, clays and okay. muds and sand mm-hmm. and forams. And but forams. it's cool because you, uh, yeah, like I was saying, I don't really do things with the rocks. I'm just trying to, like, disaggregate them and get the fossils out. But it is really cool when you actually see, like, yeah, there are, there are fossils in here. So mm-hmm. I look at a sample... Um, and we, we kind of do like population analysis. So we split the sample and it's really cool because we have this little contraption in our lab where it like evenly splits all of the debris that you put in it. So you can put a powder in and it splits it in half. So then you just keep splitting it until you have an amount that you can spread on your tray. Um, and it usually takes me like two to three hours to go through a sample, but you're just trying to see like, do like a census. Like we're all getting ready to do the census in the US. It's just like that. You see how many of this type, how many of that type. You don't ask them any probing questions that would make them not want to answer you. The forum and, census. Yeah. What kind of questions do the forums <laughs> not want to answer? <laughs> They're like, no, that's private. Mm, well, I would say just like in the realm of like people identifying species, there's a lot going on with like, things that we thought were different species, but they're actually just juveniles. So uh, I think maybe forums are elusive about their age. Uh, I don't know. So wait, so what does, can you tell us what a forum looks like for those of us who haven't No, seen honestly, them? because they look like so <laughs> many different things. I, oh, okay. A lot of people look at them and think, say like immediately like they look like popcorn. Okay. And that's because foraminifera um, have chambers. So you can think of like, if you have like a balloon animal, like each balloon is a different chamber. Um, mm. That's kind of how forums okay. are. They have these, they kind of like grow out of their little first chamber and then grow another one and another one. And then they always have a little hole because of aperture where they like can hang out. And, and they're so, they're like uh, the size of a piece of sand maybe yeah. or smaller than that. They can be smaller, yeah. Mine are pretty tiny. Unlikely apex predator forams. <laughs> <laughs> Unlikely, but modern forams are savage. OMG, they have like symbiotic relationships with some like, um, Organisms that have like neurotoxins, and they'll a lot of them have little spicules. And they forms again, I want to remind people are unicellular, they are one giant cell, and they be eaten like copepods, like multicellular <laughs> organisms. They oh, eat them, wow. they do not play around. Do they gang up? Do you th- like <laughs> is it multiple forms? Like, not that I've ever seen that, okay. would be pretty epic. 
Are there people who study living for him? Yes. I'm okay. actually going to a conference with my lab um, in Edinburgh. It's the International Forums meeting, and there will be several um, kind of sessions dedicated to modern forums. And as a microbiologist, yeah, I'm not particularly concerned with the modern forums, but just like anything else, like we don't know about the ones in the past unless we understand how they work in the future. That's how paleontology works. Like you don't know about the fossil horses unless you really understand what the modern horses are like. And so it's really cool, actually. When I was in 4M summer school last summer, two of my friends studied modern 4Ms and just what they do, like growing 4Ms in tanks like, seems like easy. It's actually really hard. Like they don't like to be in the lab and trying to understand how they reproduce. We still don't really know. Like all those things are still open questions in formative sciences. Wow. So. Interesting. I went to a talk at my first AGU that was about 4Ms that was amazing. It was a guy, Howie Spiro, and he was presenting work from his graduate student. Spider was her name. And they grew 4Ms in the lab and m sort of measured really at a high resolution with a laser the different layers of the shell. And they realized that the 4Ms were building their shells day by day, that the 4M, and they don't live that long. They live like between days. yeah, two weeks and four weeks. And you could see all of the different days in their shell. And it just, I got a little bit emotional thinking about how these 4Ms that we get from time periods that are so far in the past, like the Cretaceous, you can actually learn about what a single day during that time period was like. It sort of demystifies it to me a little bit. When I think about the Cretaceous, I think about millions of years, but there were still days during the Cretaceous. Yeah. And these little animals were living during those days and making their shell layers during those days. I just thought that was so beautiful. I love it. And I think that that hits me too when I get to like just spend my day like listening to music or podcasts and just looking at my fossils. It's really cool. And a lot of people like when you study climate science are like, aren't you depressed every day because like we're messing with the planet? And I'm like, yeah, but like I also get to like look at the earth when we weren't messing with it and like appreciate the life that was there. And that's like a feeling I wish more people could get. I think geologists have, like, just inner like inherently, you just have this idea of scope and like time scale. It just you deal with it on such a more regular basis and everyday people, and it really just helps me always keep things in perspective. Yeah, I agree. I feel like thinking about geologic time like is peaceful for me and yes. meditative. Yeah. It's like any stress of a given day. Although the idea of like thinking about the stresses of one day in the Cretaceous. <laughs> Like, what was stressing this for him out? Oh, it was getting warmer. Like. <laughs> what is that asteroid coming today? <laughs> okay, we're ready to move on to the last segment of our show called GTA. Guess that acronym. Guess, Guess that, that acronym. acronym. Ooh, did you guys play You that? are singers. <laughs> that we was awesome. I'm going to cut that out and add it to every show from now on. Okay. <laughs> That's awesome. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's what we wanted. Um, and so the way this <laughs> game works leave. is that my guests have provided me with some acronyms that they use in their fields commonly, and we're going to make Tom try to guess what they mean. Awesome. Are you ready, Tom? I am. Okay, your first acronym is OAE. <laughs> this is hard. <laughs> Without much context, yeah, it's really challenging. Yeah, there's like no context. You're not really supposed to know what it means. I don't know if that's comforting. <laughs> um, organic American Exodus. Ooh, ooh. I it like was when it. all the uh, the the organisms left America hmm. to strike it rich <laughs> elsewhere. Nice. Mm -hmm. 
It's going to happen, actually. <laughs> it's not part of geology. We're still studying. It's not part of geology. The organic American exit. Yes. Exodus. Does anybody want to jump in and tell Tom what that really means? Do you know what it means, Benjamin? Oceanic anoxic event. Yeah. Oh. Ah. It's when the oceans go anoxic. How often does that happen? It, it will, it doesn't, it's not often that it happens like the every world ocean, right? It's mm-hmm. isolated. And it's so isolated. there are like examples of oceans that are just chill without oxygen at the bottom. And then, so does everything die? Not everything. There's um. a lot of extremophiles that can live there still and certain microbes that love, like thrive in those kind of heinous environments. And that's mm. what's really cool about what Benjamin used to do, like the biomarkers. So molecular fossils, like we can have evidence for anoxia from the different microbes that took over when it was like anoxic. So the kind of remnants of those are indicators of oceanic anoxic events. Cool. Your next acronym is RSL. RSO? RSL. Oh. It's hard because we didn't talk about some things when we were talking. Were we supposed to talk about all these things? So no, it's okay. There's yeah. a comedian. Just There's let him be funny. <laughs> I'm not funny in real life. There's no consequences for Tom. If <laughs> There's no consequences? I lose my teaching post, in fact. <laughs> <laughs> Red Sea Life. RSL, does it stand for Red Sea Life? It does not. But I can tell you that one of the words there is correct. Ooh. Do you want a second shot, Tom? No. (laughs) (laughs) Does somebody want to jump in and explain RSL? Rising sea level? Relative sea level. Relative sea level. So relative sea level is the combination of the ocean rising, but also if you have land subsidence or glacial isostatic adjustment, if the land surface is still adjusting to there being ice in the past. Mm -hmm. Relative sea level is the combination of those factors that determines where the sea level is. That's something that there's, like, I've always felt like there's little nuggets where if you can, like, actually get into a meaningful conversation with somebody about climate, like, not just like, oh, my God, we're going to die. Like, that's not meaningful. But, like, our, our climate I'd say system, that's the most meaningful. <laughs> I don't know. I think, like, instilling people, like, you should feel like a steward of our planet because it's the only one. And here's why. Like, she's actually very delicate and fragile and we can like perturb her too much like something like relative sea level like people don't know that you're not just melting and then adding water like you're melting and changing like subsidence and basins like it's all Mm. i i explain climate science like it's a bunch of dominoes and we don't even know what the next dominoes are so you just start pushing them over and you don't know what that means i think that's that's a good example great point right so it's more complicated than just the water moving up Yeah. yeah yeah That, I think that's the end of our show. Thank you so much for joining me, yeah, Tom and Benjamin and Raquel. Thanks, Laura. Thank you so much thank for having you. us. This was really fun. You just listened to Lab Talk with Laura on 91.1 FM, WMUA Amherst. I'm your host, Laura Federuso. My guests today were Raquel Bryant and Benjamin Kiesling from the Geoscience Department. They are also co-founders of the Bridge Program. You can check out the first Bridge Lecture coming up April 24th with Dr. Rosemar Rios-Berrios from the National Center for Atmospheric Research. Uh, That lecture will be in ILC S211 at 4 p.m. on Tuesday, April 24th. The jingle at the beginning of our show was written and produced by Matt Woodland. Support for online hosting of Lab Talk with Laura comes from the Emmerich Labs in the Polymer Science Department. Please check out Lab Talk with Laura on Facebook and SoundCloud and subscribe on iTunes. Also, if you're going to be at UMass on Wednesday, April 11th, you should come and check out the Outreach and Public Engagement Summit happening in the Design Building from 1.30 to 4.30. There will be a panel of professional speakers from 1.30 to 2.30 and then an exhibition of people doing all the different kinds of outreach. I'll be there. 
lots of other cool people will be there talking about the way they bring their academic work out into the community. So please come check it out, 1.30 to 4.30 on Wednesday, April 11th in the Design Building at UMass. Thank you so much for listening to Lab Talk with Laura. Please stick around for WMUA news coming right up.